0: Have you open up your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark? It's uh, just affected by the by the theme of today. Just Ryan's message. Now, being a Christian for 30 plus years, and seeing a lot of people fall away. And just thinking upon Christ, uttering those words, let there be light. And everything that's happened since He's uttered those words in history, and everything that's happened in my own life, for me to be standing here, to be in the midst of you all, to be in this building, to be pressing on for Christ, It's a great kindness of God. It's a mercy, brethren. It's mercy that has made you Peter and not Judas. Mercy. Complete mercy. Well, and it's great mercy that this is the reality that we're going to read here if it's a reality in your life. Mark chapter 1. As we continue on here in Mark's Gospel. Just kind of pausing around these verses for for now. Probably greatly pick up the pace here in weeks ahead, but we're gonna park right here for a bit. Mark chapter one verse fourteen. And after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, "The time is fulfilled; the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent." and believe in the Gospel. And so Father, we are thankful for the Gospel. We're thankful, Lord, for light. Thank You, Lord. You are our rock and our Redeemer. Thank You for keeping us. Thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Lord, thank You we can run to Jesus. And, and Lord, we run to You right now, Lord, and pray, be in our midst. Help, Lord, I pray, that these two fundamental realities of what it means to be a Christian, the, the, the appropriate responses to Your Gospel, Lord, I pray You'd make them a reality in the hearts of those that don't know You this morning, this afternoon. Lord, please be real. Help us. Encourage us. Lord, you bless blessed us with so much. Oh, Father, bless us now with Your presence, Your help. In Jesus' name, Amen. And so the last message we we, we started here in, in verses fourteen and fifteen. Um, at the ex- we we looked at almost the whole passage with the exception of this last phrase here: uh, "Repent and believe in the gospel." Uh, this good news that Jesus came to proclaim and fulfill. This good news about the kingdom of God. Uh, that's what I titled the last message: Jesus' mission and message, the gospel of His kingdom. And uh, maybe I've got to work on having uh, my, my, my titles being longer like Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> Look at some of those Puritan titles. Incredibly long. But it's a Gospel, brethren, that begins really right here in verse 1. And it goes all the way to chapter 16, verse 20, if you're convinced that's the Gospel. We'll get there. But it's the whole book. The whole book is the Gospel. And yet, strangely enough, it, it's, it's really not all the gospel. We have to keep in mind what the term Gospel means. It means glad tidings, right? It, it, good news. Joyful news. And it's good and joyful news about Christ and about His kingdom and how we can be made partakers of that kingdom. Now, we, we tend to reduce it simply to that last part, um, what the Gospel does for us, which, which is significant, but that's not all that the Gospel is. In fact, we're, we are, brethren, we are actually the most insignificant part of the gospel. The gospel is all about the revelation of Christ and his love and his worth and his preeminence from the humiliation of his incarnation to the exaltation of his glorification, which will come in its fullness as, as the kingdom comes in its full consummation one day soon. The fact, brethren, that we're made partakers of this thing, that's what makes it stunningly good news that you and I get to get in on this thing. People that we are. Good news that was proclaimed way back. Way back at the beginning of Genesis. We were just there. In its most primitive seed, kernel, little form. Do you you know who the first audience of the first Gospel proclamation was? Satan, Satan of all individuals was the first audience of the Gospel message. It was right after the fall of man. God turns to Satan in Genesis 3.15 and He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first Gospel proclamation in seed form. It was good news, but not for Satan. It was good news for us. Bad news for... him. He's been, trying to, he's been trying to counter that since that statement was made. And God just keeps turning it and using it for the advancement of His kingdom. It was the revelation of, 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 a, pro, of a Messiah to come. A Messiah who would rectify this problem of sin created in that garden that's been passed down to every generation of mankind since. The promise of Messiah to deliver us from sin's curse and just condemnation. In fact, that was the primary purpose behind the law. That, that sin might be shown to be what it is. Sin. It was given to, to arouse and expose sinful flesh. Our, our rebellion against this Creator we just read that created us in His own image. It's To show us that sin defiles us, it enslaves us, it condemns us and how it offends a holy and a righteous Creator. And it separates us from Him as enemies when He banished us out of that garden. Enemies of God. And as such, we all rightly deserve the just punishment of God. We deserve the hot, holy wrath of God Almighty which will result in everlasting suffering and hellfire. And man hates that message. Oh, he recoils at it. All kinds of accusations against God and His character. It's such a a notion. But that's the truth of the matter. And that's the really bad news. That's the bad news that sets up the good news. We all stand condemned before this holy God with whom we have to do. And that's why the fear of Him is the beginning of wisdom. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, but you see this promise of good news it, it just continues to slowly unfold in scripture this this narrative good news it was kind of mysteriously covered in all the types and shadows of the Old Testament in the law in the prophets like you know in figures like Abraham and Moses and David and, and this good news good news it was just largely hidden in, in prophetic promises but now here we are we're at this scene mark 1 15 now. In the coming of Christ, this good news begins to dawn. And I say dawn because as I said last week, it's important for us to understand. This passage here, Mark 1.15, this is not Romans 1.16. It's not. Yes, it's the same Gospel. But its proclamation at this point in history is not the same. It's not. You tell me, what was Jesus' Gospel message? Do you know? What was He telling people? What was his his approach? His gospel message? When he sent out the 12 and he sent out the 70, what what did he tell them to preach? What were they saying? Yes, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Both those when he sends them out. It's exactly what he tells them to do. You know what he tells them to do? Exactly what he was doing. The exact same thing. Let people know the kingdom of God is at hand. And they went about and they they healed the sick and they raised the dead and they cleansed lepers and they cast out demons. They went house to house proclaiming this reality. very same thing that Jesus did with the exception of the profound parables that had them scratching their head half the time. You see, Jesus Jesus was in this unique position of unveiling the good news and yet He couldn't reveal it all because... All of it was not yet accomplished and fulfilled. It was not yet carried out. He was in process of doing that, you see. He, he walked this razor's edge of, of coming to reveal Gospel truth and equally, at the same time, purposely hiding Gospel truth. Did you know that? You, you realize that was Jesus' mission. Jesus was coming partially in judgment to the Jews in exposing their right their self-righteousness and their pride and their hypocrisy and as he taught he taught in such a way as to keep them in the dark that's what scripture tells us and I'm sharing this Tuesday in the campus with this you know uh, astute uh, atheist and he just Came unglued. He did not like that at all. He just did not like that. How dare God? If is a true God and He treats me like that? I mean, just all these proud responses and accusations against God. He just couldn't come to terms with that. But you know what? This it was the same way when Jesus existed. His those closest to him, his own brothers. You recall him telling his brothers, or his brothers telling him, "Go up to the feast." Go up to the feast and declare to the world who you are. I mean, you shouldn't be sitting back here and being silent about this matter. Go tell them what, who you are, what you are. Make this thing known. Don't keep it a secret. And then his disciples, the same thing. Jesus, I mean, we're having these private conversations here. Why are you teaching in parables? What, what is this? I mean, openly tell people who you are. What, what's all this parable stuff? Lord, Jesus, make it plain to us. You remember his response? To you. It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but not to them, not to others. So that so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not hear or understand. That's what Jesus said. That was his design and his teaching. Jesus was not out in the streets like you and I trying to make the Gospel as clear as we possibly can uh, when we talk to people. Using Romans and Ephesians and and, and, laying out the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work for sinners and the the great exchange that Jeff just talked about. Our sins for His righteousness. And and all those precious truths that came after the resurrection. They became known. And they came to light. So, So here... Mark tells us Jesus came proclaiming the Gospel. Saying what? What was the good news message? The Kingdom of God. Folks, the fullness of time had come. That's what he's saying. The fullness of time. All those prophetic statements that were building up to this moment, it has arrived. I'm here. The kingdom's here because I am here. And let me know, let me, let me tell you this the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's like this. And the kingdom of heaven is like that. And the kingdom of heaven is like that, and that and that and that and that. And even in times when he wasn't ta- talking in parables, even in his Sermon on the Mount, how does he open up the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for what? Theirs is the kingdom. Jesus can't stop talking about the kingdom. That's what he came to proclaim. But, Mark tells us, attached to Jesus' teaching was an expected response. In fact, it was a required response for entrance into his kingdom. If you would ever hope to be made a partaker of Jesus' kingdom, these two things must be true of you you must repent and believe in the gospel. Which makes sense, right? I mean, such a glorious, gracious, loving work of God giving us a Savior demands an appropriate response from humanity, doesn't it? Yes, the Gospel is an invitation, but it's even more so a command. So let us begin by establishing this at the outset. Repentance and faith are necessary responses to Jesus' Gospel, and they are distinctly separate things. Okay, And yet, they're inseparable to those who possess them. So you have faith, you have repentance. They're distinct, but they're inseparable. I mean, you cannot possess the one without possessing the other. That's impossible. You cannot possess true saving faith if you do, do, not, if you do not possess true saving repentance. Biblical repentance. You cannot possess genuine repentance if you don't possess genuine faith. They're distinct, but they're like, they're like two sides of the same coin, right? A coin has two sides. One side's different than the other, but they're inseparable. Different yet inseparable. And so anytime you come across any text in Scripture or any gospel narrative where, where there's, there's, there's a mention or the demand for repentance, let's say, faith is also assumed. And the mention or demand of faith assumes repentance. That's important to note that they're two distinct things. That they're two inseparable things. You cannot have you cannot have one and, and and not have the other. Just like a coin, you don't you don't you you have two sides to a coin. And so you find numerous statements in Scripture. We we do particularly in Jesus' teaching, where, where He only addresses one of the two. In fact, one of them was yesterday at the wedding. I was preaching on, on Luke, Luke 13. Where, where there Jesus says, where Jesus assumes faith, He doesn't mention faith at all in that passage. None of it in the context. No sniff of it. But He assumes faith to be present when He says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. He does. Just like when John 6, where Jesus speaks nothing at all of repentance. In fact, it's interesting John doesn't speak about repentance, but we'll talk about that later, maybe. John 6. He says, Truly, I truly, I, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. When Jesus makes that statement, it's true, and he makes that statement assuming a, pen, a repentance is present as well. That's always the case in Scripture. Here Jesus sets forth these these terms or as conditions of entrance into His kingdom. These two realities must be present and expressed. One must respond to this good news of Jesus Christ with repentance and faith. And we're going to look at both sides of this coin here. But we're going to look at one side this week and the other side next week. We're going to look at repentance today. And... uh, We know it's required for, God's, God's, for entrance into God's kingdom. Not just because Mark here mentions it twice, or mentions it's one of two things that Jesus was preaching about. But we know it because it's, it's a uniform testimony of Scripture. We see this throughout the New Testament. Now, I'm just going to quote some, a handful of verses here. Luke 5.32 I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I quoted Luke 13, right? Or twice, Luke 13, 3 and 5, Jesus says, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All inclusive. Acts 2.32, Peter preaching says, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent. Peter's preaching. He's preaching the Gospel. He's letting him know that God's saving Gentiles. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Acts 17.30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Paul sums up his ministry in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. He says, I testify both to the Jews and to the Gentiles repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, scripture is very clear that repentance is a necessary element to true conversion. However, what does repentance mean? When John Baptist and Jesus and Peter and Paul, tell people to repent, what are they telling people to actually do? Listen, this is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. I mean, it's for something to be so fundamentally important that to lack it and to fall short of it is, is to fall short of being a Christian. I mean, that alone makes this matter very important to understand. Correct? And it's amazing that something so... Fundamental to Christianity has a measure of misunderstanding amongst Christians. And one of the reasons why repentance can be difficult and misunderstood and misrepresented is because, let's, let's face it, I mean, let's be honest, it's, there is a certain level of ambiguity about how the term is used in Scripture. There, there is. And so let's begin uh, by looking at the Greek word translated repent. Repent. And I want you to see with me right, in the different ways Scripture uses this term going forward. That's the plan here. Uh, so, so we can speak with it with greater confidence and awareness of its different nuances. Because while it is clear on the one hand, there are some nuances that I'm afraid get overlooked and unver- underemphasized when seeking to clarify it. And I'll probably even fall short of that myself. Okay, so our English word repent is a Greek word metanoeo. Metanoia is the noun form it gets translated repentance. My NAS Greek dictionary tells me it means to change one's mind or purpose. The Strong's Greek dictionary defines it to think differently or afterwards. My Mount's Greek dictionary says to undergo a change in frame of mind and feeling. The word literally means to perceive afterwards. Meta, after, noel, perceive, to perceive. It's to think differently afterwards, to rethink a matter. It's to think one way about something and then then afterwards you change your mind about it. Think differently. And I think Mounts' definition really most accurately encapsulates the word repent to undergo a change in frame of mind and feeling. I think that added, and feeling is good and faithful to Scripture's use of the idea behind repentance as a whole. And and we do a great disservice, I think, uh, to the concept of repent and repentance to just simply stress it only being a change of mind. And I say that because in my lifetime I've seen repentance taught, and emphasized in ways that end up reshaping what repentance really means. Uh, the Lord happened to save me in the days when uh, right at the time John MacArthur was seeking to correct a lot of false ideas about the Gospel in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. And, and that book was a response to what had become known as the lordship controversy. And there were men like Charles Ryrie, men like Zane Hodges, and many others who were teaching. You can have Jesus as a Savior, And Not necessarily make Him the Lord of your life. That's an optional thing, which is just a bunch of hot garbage rotten in the sun. That's not biblical whatsoever. But it was gaining steam and still has it today. Many followers of such teaching. And MacArthur exposes that. He also exposes this wrong idea of repentance that was becoming popular. But even men like Charles Stanley, and I don't know if Charles Stanley uh, changed his position on that, but he would emphasize repentance is just simply a change of mind. And it didn't necessarily result in a change in your life. In fact, as we heard from Ryan earlier, you could believe, change your mind about God, believe upon Him, and you could just walk away as an atheist and your salvation is secure. Because that's biblical repentance, you see. Just I changed my mind. And uh, I think you can see the impact of that 35-40 years in our culture now. 35-40 years later anyway. And there's been more pupils and students that have followed suit and carried that into their churches. And, and, and today basically the gospel is has been boiled down and watered down to this decisionism. You just change your mind about who God is, and boom, you got you got the, you got a convert. Hey, you know Before I didn't believe about God, but you know, now I, now I guess I do, and uh, so I'm not going to hell. That's wonderful, isn't it? it and so it's it's boiled down to this, this intellectual ascent. Acknowledgement of who God is. And you know, whether that amounts to any change in my life whatsoever, that's it's immaterial. And sadly, that's that's acceptable teaching on repentance in a lot of places. That's why I think it's important when we express repentance that we explain it in fuller terms than just simple change of mind. People changing their mind. Uh, there's a lot of people that have changed their mind that haven't been saved. In fact, Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. uh, Ryan referred to this earlier. Judas, right? You realize the Scripture tells us Judas changed his mind? And yet obviously, he didn't do it in such a way that yielded salvation, did it? Matthew 27, verse 3, "...then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders." His, repent, his idea of repentance was trying to do something to make up for his wrong. Yes, the phrase change of mind is not the exact same Greek word, but they're very closely related. In fact, they're so closely related, the King James translates it, repented instead of changed mind. But obviously, this was not a repentance that leads to life, was it? No. He went directly to hell. And so I share that verse just just to demonstrate that simply talking in terms about changing mind without any other context about, about it is not a sufficient way to communicate the concept of biblical repentance. Not without further explanation. And there are countless lost professors of faith that have been deceived by such simple, simple explanations. When we talk about biblical repentance, it's important that we provide a biblical framework for the use of the term Judas's changed mind produced actually produced further estrangement from God and suicide. Biblical repentance produces reconciliation with God and a pursuit of him. It's the total opposite. It's no longer opposed to God. It's no longer justifying sin. It's taking God's side and agreeing with God about our sin and a resolution to renounce that sin. It's to turn Turn away from sin and to God. Doing a 180 in our mind. A 180 away from sin and self and to God and pursuing His will. Subjecting ourselves to Him. The change in repentance has everything to do with a change in someone's relationship with the living God. The change of mind in biblical repentance produces a change in in one's mind about God, about who He is, about what God says, about who I am, and how those two things relate. In essence, it's, it's to bring your mind in subjection to and compliance to God's Word. That includes, that includes our whole being, brother, Not just our mind, but our emotions, our affections, our will. That's why I like Mount's definition. Because a person's feelings or emotions are very much involved in what repent, what's going on in repentance. Listen, you tell me that you repented and you're free from, from any emotion or feeling from shame or grief or regret? That You might have something, but you don't have repentance. Biblical, re, biblical re, repentance happens in, in brokenness. Sorrow. that You've offended the living God. It's not some glib thing. It's not some light matter. It it, it puts a place, it puts it puts a person in a position where they hate their sin. They despise it. They acknowledge it for what it is. And they're forsaking this thing. And that's not something that's feeling free. If you're a Christian, you know that's true. Now granted, yes, folks can feel plenty of grief, plenty of regret because of what sin has cost them in this life and it not have any and not be any biblical repentance whatsoever. That's true. We have examples of worldly sorrow in Scripture. Esau being one of them. He experienced great grief and, and, and regret over his decision to give away his birthright. But that was not grief that was aimed towards God. Not at all. His grief was selfish. He was thinking about what he was losing the temporal blessings that he had forfeited by his own foolishness. Nevertheless, Paul does talk about godly sorrow and grief, doesn't he? That leads to repentance. It's part of repentance. It, it, it falls very much, In fact, it falls very much in line with what with, with the, the Old Testament presents to us in this idea of repentance. It's typically coupled with sorrow, grief, mourning, and this idea of turning back, returning to God from, from idols to God. And I don't think we want to dismiss that when we get to our New Testaments. Listen, just because the Greek word or definition of the word translated repent is, is to rethink afterwards or change your mind, I think it behooves us to recognize that and, and strongly consider the Old Testament's words and the Old Testament's uh, use of those words in their setting. Listen, why? Number one, Greek culture is not Hebrew culture. It's not. In fact, the Greeks didn't even really have a term for repentance because it was a foreign idea to them. Why? Because they weren't Christians. They weren't followers of God. They were in they were, they were idolatry. They were worshiping false idols. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying metanoia to change your mind is not a good representation of repent. Not saying that at all. Obviously, it's the best representation of all Greek words to describe it. What I'm saying is I think we do a disservice to Scripture's full meaning behind the notion of repentance if we totally ignore the Old Testament context from the idea of what repentance... That's where, I, that's where repentance originates, right? And brethren, there's good reasons why there's people that communicate. Perhaps you've heard them communicate. Repentance in terms of sorrow, in terms of turning away from sin. They, they didn't pull those ideas out of thin air. Those are actually rooted in the Old Testament use of the, of the word repent. Let's look, we're going to look at that. There's, there's two main Hebrew words used to, that, that get translated repent. And I'm going to butcher the first one because I just can't say the, the inflections, but nakam and shuv. And it really depends on the translation you're using and how those words get translated. The ESV translates the word knock them" repent one time in the, in the Old Testament. One time. And other times it translates knock them, relent, regret, comfort, compassion. Hence the confusion. <laughs> and the King James translates it 38 times repent. That's the difference. The other word shuv gets translated repent 12 times in our ESVs and only three times in the King James. But these two words are used for repent in the Old Testament. And they mean this, knock them, to be sorry. Move to pity. Have compassion. Comfort oneself. Suffer grief. Repent from one's own doings. Shuv means to turn back, to return. Those are the two definitions. Those are, those are the Hebrew terms for repentance. And I don't think we want to ignore them. Now, the term nechem, which means to be sorry, to relent, to suffer grief, to have compassion, to comfort oneself. I mean, that's just kind of, it might sound like a hodgepodge of very definitions, right? I mean, but they do all share one thing in common all of them are are, are emotional expressions in response to something. In other words, something happened and it provoked an emotional response or change being expressed. A change of emotion or mind, if you will. And what's interesting, we can add add further confusion to the discussion, is the fact that oftentimes repentance in the Old Testament is speaking of God. But we know with certainty that it's never speaking of God as it relates to sin. We know that. That's only the case when it's speaking of man. Let Jeff address that subject with you all. In fact, I think he did some time ago. But the second word, shuv, always carries it with the idea of turning back to God. Turning back. Away Away from the idolatry, away from the sin, and to God. So let's just briefly look at these two words expressed in the Old Testament. I'm just going to, as we start to wrap things up, I want to look at these two words and just a handful of pa- passages. Nechem, Okay, this is the, the change of emotions. Uh, Genesis 6. This is going to get translated a number of different words. But this is, our, this is our word. It gets translated repent. Keep that in mind. Genesis 6. 6 the Lord regretted... That's our word, regretted. The Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth and it grieved Him to His heart. And so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry. There it is again, same word. I'm sorry that I have made them. The Lord is expressing a change of emotion here, right? We just read it. God was glad. Quite happy with what he made. Now we're reading five chapters later, I'm sorry that I made them. Expression of sorrow that God is expressing here in chapter 6. Chapter 24, if you will. Verse 67, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah his mother and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. That word comforted is our word for repent. You might think, wait a minute, what? What's happening here? Let's see what's happening. His mother passes away, right? Isaac's mother passes away. He's grieving. He's mourning her. And Rebekah comes into his life, this beautiful bride, and he's comforted. There's a change that takes place in him emotionally. All the grief and sorrow that he was bearing... Rebecca comes and there's a comfort that takes place. That's the change there. Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Very familiar passage. Verse 12. Moses is <laughs> pleading with the Lord and about Him threatening to wipe out the Israelites. Why should the Egyptians say, Moses starts to argue, With evil intent did He bring them out to kill them in the mountain and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. There it is, relent. That's the word for repent. Verse 14, And the Lord relented, there it is again, from the disaster that He had spoken of bringing on His people. It's interesting that even the word Nechem has this turning aspect to it, right? We see it. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster. And then we have lastly on this one word, the nechem, uh, Job 42. As Job, <laughs> Job encounters the living God thinking himself a little bit more highly than he ought to think. And after encountering the majesty of God, he says in Job 42, verse 6, "...therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Job changed his mind about himself, didn't he? He had a pretty high opinion. Until he went toe to toe here with the Lord. And that encounter made him poor in spirit. It humbled him in the dust. The repentance expressed here is not just a low view of himself. I mean, he hated his self righteousness, his self righteous attitude. He expresses it by piling on dust and ashes upon, over himself. So that's, that's Nechem. That's just a handful of passages in the Old Testament, this idea of repentance but shuv which in the ESV gets translated repent more often than nechem shuv we find that in 1 Kings chapter 8 we find it in a number of passages we're just going to look at 4 here 1 Kings 8:47 the lord Yet if they turn their heart to the land to which they have been carried captive, the Lord speaking of the Israelites, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, we have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. Verse 48, if they repent, both of these repents in 47 and 48 are the word, if they repent with all their heart, And with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive. You see the emphasis of turning back there? They turn, they turn their heart at the beginning of the the passage, if they turn their heart in the land, and do so with all their being, wholeheartedly repenting. So this repentance involves the whole being, the whole being of the person turning away from the sin and unto God wholeheartedly. Ezekiel 14. We see this aspect of turning again. Ezekiel 14, verse 6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your sins, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. See, repentance involves this recognition of what's abominable to God. And a, and a forsaking it. A dropping, a letting it go. An embracing of Him. It's a 180. It's that which is completely opposed to God. Turn from it. That's what He's saying. Ezekiel 18.30 Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. God warning them again. Everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn. And this is an interesting situation because both repent and turn are the same word. But... He's like doubling down. Repent, repent from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. There it is again with, with the turn. Uh, and then lastly, Joel 2. Joel 2, that's when your minor prophets. You got your Daniel, Hosea, Joel, third one in. Joel 2. Verse. 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, <laughs> in, all, in all the rebellion, the Israelites, even now. Let's look at the graciousness of God. Even now, declares the Lord, return. That's our word, repent. Return to Me with all your heart. See that? The whole person. Everything. I want everything. I want it all. All your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts, not your garments. That's what God's after. This is a pick, great picture of, of repentance right here for us. Rend, the rending of garments was a common practice they, they would do in, in, in Israel. God says, no, enough, enough of the outward show. I want the heart rended. I want real repentance happening. Not, not lip service. But you see here, the change of mind and repentance, it's, it's coupled with emotion and, and, and sorrow and grief and a changing of one's orientation. No longer dabbling in sin. No longer holding hands with the sin. It's, it's, a, it's a turnabout from a previous attitude or behavior to God, a Godward disposition. But you know what, brother? Some of the best examples of repentance in, in the Bible don't even use the word. Psalm 51 is is like the classic example of biblical repentance. The whole psalm is an expression of repentance. Psalm 51, verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, says David, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you, he's talking to God, that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David is feeling the great weight of his sin before God. He's agreeing with God's judgment for his sin. And then David goes on in verse 7, "...purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow." He wants to be rid of this filthy, disgusting feeling that sin has brought into his life and his heart. Free me from it. Cleanse me from it. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me. A cry for restoring. A cry for deliver me from blood guiltiness. He feels it. That's repentance. Repentance. That is repentance on display. David coming to terms with his sin and his great offense before a holy God. Calling it what it is. Crying out for deliverance from his sin and its devastating effect upon him. Breaking, you know, talks in terms of breaking his bones. Feeling the weight of his guilt. Zapping his joy. Feeling God's absence. You know what that's like, Christian? You, you do know what it's like when you haven't repented of your sin. This is exactly the feeling that Christians get. A dearth. A deadness. A zapping of joy. A a taking away of God's presence. An excitement about meeting with God's people. A real rejoicing in the songs of Zion. A real rejoicing when I hear the Gospel. Why is my heart dead? Something's wrong. Something's wrong. David expresses real repentance. A real break. A real acknowledgement. A real agreement with God. He puts the thing on the table and says, that's what it is. You're right, God. I'm done. Away. Away with it. Cleanse me. Bring me back. Restore me. It's no light switch. You can just flick on and off. Oh, don't play with sin. Don't play with sin, my friend. Because there's no guarantee of the presence of God. Here you have the king." King David of all people, the sweet psalmist of Israel, crying out for God, Lord, I want to know Your presence. Restore it. Don't take away Your Holy Spirit. Lord, He's desperate. Sin did that. Sin did that. And yet, the beauty of repentance. God restores Him. Because He's repentant. He is. These are are emotions of sorrow and mourning and regret that accompany real repentance. Repentance. Yes, emotions themselves are are not repentance. Uh, But you can't tell me someone's repentant if they don't feel any sorrow for their sin before God. No. David recognized. He recognized, Lord, the sacrifice you're looking for. care less about my lamb or my bullock or... You want a, a broken and a contrite heart. That's in the context there. A broken and rot, contrite heart God doesn't despise. Listen, you're broken over your sin. Oh, God's smiling. He's ready to come and come down to you and rescue and cleanse all that sin and restore that fellowship with you immediately. He's ready for that. Are you ready to let go of the sin? That's the issue. And I fear by simply just expressing repentance as a, as a simple change of mind. We can lose some of this this Hebrew concept um, that clearly Ryrie and Hodges have done. <clears throat> now, as we close, I, I just want to show you a New Testament, just one New Testament example of repentance expressed, uh, where where the word you don't find you don't find the word repentance. It's it's First Thessalonians chapter one. First Thessalonians chapter one. In verse 8, Paul says, "...not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God." There it is, clear as day. "...you turned to God from idols." That, my friend, is repentance. Now we can squabble and say, well, then that's the fruit of repentance. Sure, be my guess. But you show me your repentance. Without your fruit, I'll show you my repentance by my fruit. Because without no fruit, you have no repentance. You don't. And we see this in the Old Testament, this, this turning aspect. We see that attached to... Even Peter's preaching in Acts 3, I quoted it. Peter's preaching in Solomon's porch, and he tells the Jews, his fellow Jews, repent therefore and turn again. Turn. Turn from your pride and your rebellion against God and all your arrogance and your self righteous traditions and orient your heart toward God and his Messiah that he's given us. He's here. He's arrived. Embrace the Christ. Now, I don't have time to go into that. the fact that repentance is a gift from God. That is true. It is a gift that God gives. And yet, it's a responsibility that God requires from sinners, guilty sinners like you and me, to express. I read Acts 11.18 where Luke, Luke records the response that the Gentiles were, were receiving the Gospel. And he says to them, uh, then the Gentiles to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance. God, notice that God has granted repentance that leads to life. Second Timothy two twenty five reveals the same thing. True repentance is a work of God in the heart. The same can be said with faith. Each are deep workings of the Holy Spirit, and yet man is responsible to express and demonstrate when confronted with the gospel of God's grace. We're, we're We're pressed and we're responsible to respond to it with repentance and faith. And my friend, let me tell you, there's many of you that have sent under the Gospel countless times. I mean, Jesus' ministry, they're going to be responsible for sitting under Jesus' ministry. And there was a lot of shroudedness. We talked about that. Parables. Some of you young people have grown up under the Gospel and you've heard it clearly over and over and over again and you yawn and you can barely pay attention and you can't keep yourself awake and it's like it's it's you're bored that the living god has come down in human flesh to deal with your sin that's scary you have a responsibility right now to repent and believe the gospel that's the demand God didn't, God didn't bring you into a family. He didn't bring you in these doors to dangle something before you that He won't give you. If you don't have it, it's because we heard in the first hour you don't have a desire to have it. You don't want it. And you will pay the consequences for that. Justly so. But God gave this... I mean, I, more. The older I get, John 3.16 just becomes more precious to me. God so loved the world. You get this? God, God did this because He actually loves us. It doesn't matter what you've done. That's, that's what blows me away. It doesn't matter what your past is, how much knowledge you got of the Bible, what kind of sins you've committed. It just doesn't even matter. God so loved the world, He came to remedy your sin problem. Listen, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not, not why we were good people. He didn't come down here to save good people. He came down here to save rotten people. People have problems. People that are broken. People that are f- full of sin. People that hate Him, the truth is, if you don't know Christ and you've been you've been in rebe- living a life of rebellion against Him, I don't care what you think about God, you do hate Him. But you know what? He loves you. The Bible tells us He loves you. He loves you so much He gave His Son. Come down here and, and take on flesh and live a perfect life that you and I just miserably fail at. A perfect life. Perfect righteousness. He carried out every command of God. He did the will of God to a T. He faced the devil and everything the devil could throw at Him. He never sinned in word, thought, or deed. Perfect Perfection to the core to become a perfect sacrifice. To willingly lay down His life. To bear your sins. Yes, the most wicked thing you can think about that you've done. So wicked you wouldn't want it to be shown up here. Jesus bore it in His body on the tree for you. And for you to reject that, is utter foolishness, and for you to reject that is the, is the epitome of pride of blindness. This is how much did Jesus love? I know it can be a trite thing and a glib thing and very superficial, but the reality is: picture Jesus nailed on the cross; he's he's visibly showing you how much he loves you. That much. He's given his life's blood, his, his body. He, he's bearing God's wrath. He came to satisfy what, what we, we, he came to satisfy the law that we've broken. To, we broke God's holy standard. That's why we got driven out of the garden. And our lives prove it. We live in rebellion against God, but God so loved us, He gave us His Son to be that perfect sacrifice, to be the substitute, to stand in our place, to take the judgment for us. That's what happened on Calvary. That's what happened on that cross. Jesus bore God bore our guilt for us. He took the punishment that we deserve, that you deserve. If you put your trust in Him right now, it's not, some, it's, it's, it's not some process. You trust Him right now. You repent right now. You change your mind right now and your will of pursuing sin and just embracing Christ and, and trusting His Gospel to be sufficient. His blood that He shed to be sufficient to make you righteous and acceptable in the court of God. And you can be a Christian right now. Because it's not based on what you do. It's based on what Jesus did. Jesus bore our sin. He, per, he takes care of our sin and He provides us the righteousness we need. Yours is to, to repent and believe. Repent and believe. That's it. The smallest child can do it, the oldest man can do it. it, 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 it it's down on the basis of what you do. God's done everything necessary to grant you the gift of eternal life, and it's found in His Son, Jesus Christ. So I bid you repent and believe the gospel to the saving of your soul. And, and, you, and you do that, your life will never be the same. It'll be absolutely glorious. You're just gonna be one you're gonna walk into this wonderful sphere of the kingdom of God and just be in wonder till the day you die. And you get to walk with it the likes of us. So I, I plead with you, listen, the path, you know what your you know what your life has, has given you this this far, right? It's emptiness. It's brokenness. It's, 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 it's all the lies the devil has given you that hasn't satisfied, it hasn't given you what you've... It, it, the promises he sets before people, they're lies, and you know it. And it's led you down the path of misery and regret and guilt and shame. And Jesus says, give it to me. I'll take it. And I'll remove it all. And I'll give you my peace. And I'll give you my joy. And I'll give you my forgiveness today. Father, I pray that you would do even that. Thank You for such a wonderful Savior, such a wonderful Gospel. Lord, thank You for the gift of repentance and faith. Lord, we'd be gone. We would be those ones that were in the crowd and said, nah, I've had enough. We would. Lord, except for Your kindness and grace, thank You so much for Your mercy and Your faithfulness to us. Lord, help us be good stewards of what You've deposited in us. Lord, have mercy on our lost loved ones, children, visitors. I'll let them know the freeing power of the Gospel, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.